This is Edward Mazur, Chairman Emeritus of the City Club of Chicago. Our speaker today, who presented a most interesting discussion to our audience, was Dr. Arwady, the head of the Department of Public Health for the City of Chicago. Dr. Arwady has been with the City of Chicago as the director for about two and a half years. She was introduced by Mayor Lightfoot, who described her as a selfless public servant, a pediatrician by training, but who is applying the lessons from COVID-19 to address Chicago's racial life expectancy gap. Dr. Arwoody also said, in addition to phone numbers 911 and 411, we can look forward to having two new ones, 211 for health-related issues and 988 for mental health questions and a suicide hotline. Mayor Lightfoot said, Allison, Dr. Arwoody, I don't know where the city of Chicago would be without you. Thank heaven for being in our corner. Dr. Arwoody pointed out that she was at a conference in Washington last week and learned that over 350 health commissioners across the United States have left their positions because of the lack of political support from their mayors and city managers. She said this has not been the case in the city of Chicago. Dr. Arwoody pointed out that public health is more than health care. It is a systematic approach. Education, environmental concerns, including restaurant inspectors, lead paint inspectors, access to dental and eye care, vaccinations, mental health, violence prevention, and much, much more. She said that most public health work is unseen by the larger public. She then went into a lengthy discussion of life expectancy as a key to understanding public health. She said much of our increased life expectancy over the last century is because of developments in the area of public health. She pointed out that our society in the United States does not have health care that is linked to basic human rights. She concluded by saying that the city of Chicago, if someone needs the original vaccine, the second or the booster shots, the health department will come to your home and administer it in your home. She also said that the city of Chicago, with its excess of vaccine at one time, unlike other cities, did not simply dispose of those extra vaccines, but sent them to areas that were in great need in the United States and, more important, overseas. Dr. Allison Arwoody, the public health system of the city of Chicago. Thank you. I am going to bypass the doctor's bio because I want to give the mayor time to have some comments. Um, this has not been an easy almost, has it been almost three years? Just crazy. Two and a half years. I want to make sure that we have ample time for the mayor to say what she's going to say and then to have Dr. Arwady follow up. So uh, if you need her bio, I think you can probably look it up, look on our website or something like that. I'm going to decrease now so that we can bring up the mayor. Mayor Lightfoot.
Hi, good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> and thank you for your indulgence. I was just telling Jackie, <clears throat> it's been plane, trains, and automobiles for me today. I just came from Chicago State <clears throat> at a high rate of speed to make sure uh, that I was here. So I appreciate your indulgence. <clears throat> it's truly an honor to introduce um, Dr. Uh, Allison Arwady, our CDPH uh, commissioner. There's so many things that I can say, uh, but I'll keep my remarks um, brief so you can hear directly from her. When COVID came to our city um, a little over two years ago, um, Dr. Artie was really a newly minted uh, commissioner. She'd been in an acting uh, position since uh, 2019, June of 2019. Um, and I will say, and as I remind many members of the city council, we had some challenges getting her confirmed, which seems remarkable um, in light of everything uh, that's happened and particularly uh, the service that she's given uh, to our city. I cannot think of a better example of selfless public service than Allison Arway. I am going to give you a couple of nuggets because I think they're important to kind of set the frame. Um, we work our tails off. Um, and every single day, Allison, I think we worked um, about 90 days straight, seven days a week when the pandemic first hit. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the circumstances demanded. Literally night and day. Worrying every single day. Not knowing exactly what the future was going to bring. And I can tell you, those early days were really scary. Really scary. We didn't know uh, much about the virus in the uh, early offing. We just knew that it was super contagious and likely very deadly. And both turned out to be true. But every single day, I stood on the shoulders of this woman and her remarkable team at CDPH. They were steady as you go. Um, when we could have easily veered off in one direction or another, steady as she goes, um, and gave us great comfort and gave, I think, the public uh, great comfort. Allison's a, a pediatrician uh, by training and then went off to far-flung places to uh, learn about and deal with uh, infectious diseases in Africa and um, in the Arabian Peninsula. So we couldn't have a better leader in public health for the moment that we are in. And I am unbelievably grateful um, to everything that she's done. She, we had to tell folks some hard truths um, and things that frankly I think a lot of people didn't want to hear, but we knew that we had to be extraordinarily transparent, uh, that we had to make sure that everybody had information um, from the daily briefings to the doctor is in uh, Facebook programming um, to uh, the uh, dashboards that I know many of you checked night and day to make sure that you understood really where we were. Now here's the truth, folks. COVID's not over, all right? It's not over because it's not over with us. We're still seeing cases inch up a little bit. But we are in such a better place as a city because of the incredible work of Dr. Arwady and her team. I mean, literally, Allison and her team are now entertaining conversations for people all across the world because of the work that we've done here in Chicago. We knew that we needed to, you can clap for that. 
We knew that we needed to make sure that we um, followed our North Stars of equity and inclusion. And as you know, in the early days, we are seeing this uh, virus take a devastating toll on black and brown communities. And we worked tirelessly doing everything that we could to make sure that we were reaching those communities. Allison and her team conceived of something that no doubt saved untold numbers of lives. It was called Protect Chicago Plus. You remember in the early days of the the pandemic or early days when we got the vaccine, the federal government made us in lockstep healthcare workers, then first responders, um, people over 65, people. But we were seeing this virus absolutely devastate black and brown communities. So don't tell anybody at the CDC. Um, But we decided that we were going to follow the rules, but we were going to enhance those rules by making sure that we were going into the communities that were most deeply affected um, and making sure that anybody who was eligible got a vaccine right then. We couldn't wait. We would have lost more lives if we had waited and followed the federal government's very rigid uh, plans on vaccine distribution. And that's exactly what we did. <clears throat> And and in in particular, the one thing that I think we're all very proud of, if you looked at Latinx Chicago, all over, the virus was just absolutely devastating those communities. And for much of 2020 and er, into early 21, we really had a hard time getting any traction. But because of Protect Chicago Plus, now Latinx Chicago is more likely underscore that, more likely to receive the first dose of a vaccine than white Chicago. That is a remarkable accomplishment. And I don't think there are many cities across the country that can say that. And it's because of Dr. Arwady's leadership. Now, I'll, I'll stop because you need to hear from her. But let me just say, as I've said to her privately and uh, with our team, and I'm going to try to do this without doing what I normally do, which is getting very perclimped. <clears throat> Allison, I don't know where we would be without you. I really don't. Every single day, we all said prayers and hoped that we would be able to get on the other side of this terrible, terrible pandemic. And I know personally that the thing that kept me going, the thing that gave me strength, was to know that you were in my corner and that I could rely upon you. So God bless you for everything that you've done for our city. We owe you such a tremendous debt of gratitude. Thank you. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Allison Arwady. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mayor Lightfoot. And, you know, I really appreciated that throughout that whole introduction, she kept saying Allison and her team, because I've got to start and end. And at all points, things that have gone well in the city of Chicago related to COVID-19 are in part because of my absolutely amazing team at the Chicago Department of Public Health, and in part because so many of you and so many other Chicagoans were willing to step up 
to do things differently and to say, how can we take some of the lessons that we've learned from COVID to make our city more resilient, stronger? So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. Mayor Lightfoot actually encouraged us from the very beginning of COVID to build no temporary scaffolding. It's a little bit of a play on, you know, Daniel Burnham and make, make no little plans. But Public health has not had the spotlight very often. Public health has not had a lot of funding very often. And recognizing that all of a sudden, because of this pandemic, we were going to have resources and we were going to have the ability to hopefully lift up not just the, the response to COVID, but the other underlying health inequities in our city. She said, let's not do this in a temporary way. And so my whole team has worked to try to apply lessons from COVID-19 and turn them into long-term strategies to help address Chicago's racial life expectancy gap. The last thing I'll note is that I just came from the Big Cities Health Coalition this last week out in D.C., and it was pretty remarkable to see how few health commissioners are still in that role. And we were talking about it, and there are more than 350 health commissioners, health directors all over this country that have been pushed out, that have been had to resign because they didn't agree with the way politics were going, uh, had their lives threatened and decided it wasn't worth it. And I want to just tell you that I know the mayor said she's grateful for me, but let me tell you how grateful I am for her. Because here in Chicago and in Illinois, our political leaders, the mayor, the governor, co-owned COVID. So many political leaders across this country pointed to the health commissioners and said, it's their fault. They're the ones who are making you wear the mask. They're the ones who are, you know, when we had to shut down. The political leaders in many places in this country only wanted to own the happy news, the reopenings. Uh, and here, that has not been the case. It has been a team effort with every department here um, and really with shared responsibility and decision making. And I'm incredibly grateful that two and a half years later, I am like still going as strong as I was before. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. So I want you to just take a mental note of what you think of when you think of public health. What does it look like? What do you see? A lot of you, I know from experience, think of this. This is health care. Health care, essential, especially for taking care of sick people with COVID or otherwise. But public health is partly about working with the health care system, but it's much more about the environments, the systems, the policies that we create as a government, as a society. And so my team... I don't just do COVID. We do everything that you see pictures up here from mosquito control to make 
West Nile not be a major problem here, to environmental inspections and lead paint inspections. Our restaurant inspectors have certainly been to this restaurant and any other one you go to to Chicago to make sure our food supply is safe. We make sure that children in, in Chicago public schools have access to uh, dental uh, care and sealant uh, and have eye vision and free glasses where necessary. We obviously do vaccinations. We work on mental health. We work on healthier living, violence prevention. The list goes on and on. But most of our work is actually about structures more than it is direct health care. And I want to just highlight the nation's health dollar here because we spend more per capita in this country than anybody else does. But we do not have better health outcomes and this is from the calendar year 2020, a.k.a. the first year of COVID, when we were investing in public health in ways that were remarkable. And you'll see on the left there um, that about 31% of our dollars go to health care, another 20% to physician services, 8% to drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this other category that is 17%. Other going over to the right, we've got home health care, we've got other health and personal care, durable medical equipment. And then right down at the bottom, in the first year of COVID, this country spent 5% of its health dollar on all of the activities that I just showed you. Normally, pre-COVID, less than three cents on the dollar. And this is the sort of work. My concern is during Ebola, during Zika, during COVID, we get funding that comes and then it goes. And one of the reasons the U.S. has had such trouble responding to COVID is that you can't fund this sort of systems and policies and environments and uh, care after the crisis hits. So just, to, again, very high level, the public health system, if you're not aware, really thinks about the community as the patient or, or community care. It's the health of the community informed by individuals, where the health care and the medical system, amazing, thinking about patient care, health of the individuals informed by the community. The primary approach in public health is really disease prevention. Um, the primary approach in health care is disease treatment, but there is, of course, overlap between those. Uh, I already mentioned about the primary goal in public health is thinking about the whole community. Often the goal in clinical medicine is thinking about the whole patient. Our patient panel is geographically defined. For us, it is the city of Chicago. Uh, and our primary science is epidemiology, the patterns of disease, what drives them, how can we adopt that, and then implementation. How do we turn best practices into something that can reach all Chicagoans? Whereas on the healthcare side, critical and amazing in COVID, basic and clinical research that got us the vaccines. Uh, we don't make the vaccines, but we work on making sure they can get to everybody. Um, and then finally, the typical employer, people often don't realize this, for public health is government. Uh, local, state, federal, or others that are uh, sort of perigovernmental. And most public health work is totally unnoticed by the public. We call it the prevention paradox. You don't see the food board outbreak that was prevented by my inspectors who were here. You don't see all of the diseases that don't emerge because of the vaccination work. You don't see all of the kids that don't get lead poisoned because we've invested in cleaning up their homes. That is hard for people to understand. You know when you go to the doctor. You don't know when you benefit from public health.
So in 2020, something did go wrong, right? Uh, and suddenly my job did become very public. And this was never a goal in life of mine. Um, I, uh, I chose this picture on the bottom right because I, you can see I'm wearing the same dress. That's not... That's not me. That's a cardboard cutout of me. And, and on the other side is a cardboard cutout of the mayor because there were life-size cardboard cutouts of me at like all the vaccination events. Uh, so people could pose with me, which is a little odd. But again, it gave us an opportunity, I think, to explain what do we do in public health? How do we get through this? And how do we not let this pandemic tear us apart as it has torn so much of this country apart? So the number one thing that we follow in public health is life expectancy. If you're going to choose one number, this is the one that tells you how healthy is your population. I really like it because you can't fudge it. You get it off the death certificates. So this is from 1880 up to 2019. I'll just remind you that in 1880, Americans lived on average less than 40 years. Yeah, a lot of that is infant mortality, et cetera, but still... All of that increase, by the time we got to 2019, they were living about 79 years. You see where that red circle is? Anybody know what that is? That's the last pandemic, exactly. So 1918. And that is exactly what we are seeing in our numbers here today. But this is a remarkable story of progress. Most of it actually because of public health. Investments in safe water, in, sa in, in healthier housing, in, in uh, you know, more policies that protected workers. And, um, you know, and then obviously a little bit later, inventions like antibiotics uh, and all of the amazing medical care that we have. But we've been on an upward trajectory, as has the world, except for the last pandemic. But something changed in the first decade and the second decade of this century. So in Chicago, we'd been going up, but in 2012, this is by race ethnicity here, in red, we see white non-Latinx Chicagoans basically flat, up a little bit, went from just under an 80-year life expectancy to just over an 80-year life expectancy. But every other racial and ethnic group in Chicago was seeing dropping life expectancy before COVID totally different than anything we've seen. And that was bringing our life expectancy in Chicago down before COVID. I want to highlight the racial life expectancy gap here. Even before COVID, in purple, that's black Chicagoans, had an average life expectancy of 71 years, about nine years less long than other groups. And so at the Chicago Department of Public Health, before COVID, we had decided to focus on this racial life expectancy gap because this is not biologic. This is preventable, and this is a result of decisions that we've made as a society. So what does drive that gap in Chicago? Our epidemiologists did the data. More than half of the gap are chronic diseases. Do chronic diseases get the spotlight? Not usually. But diabetes and heart disease and some of the cancers, smoking-related diseases, are half of that gap. And those, in turn, of course, 
have to do with what opportunities folks have for access for safe spaces for exercise or access to uh, healthy foods that and, and all of the um, environmental and economic opportunities. Next in Chicago, driving that gap, gun-related homicide. Next, infant mortality, still. Next, um, HIV and other infectious diseases. We were glad we called it that because with COVID, uh, that moved into number two. And then fifth was opioid overdoses. And so CDPH worked to make sure that in each of these main proximal causes of the gap, we were putting new programming in place, really focusing on funding and coordination. But so much of that work, remember, yes, it's about getting people connected to healthcare. Yes, it's about uh, having opportunities. But more of it is working on those root causes underneath. And when we think about these health inequities, mortality, what actually kills people? Like, what's on the death certificate? That's what my epidemiologists look at. Disease and injury. So what causes disease and injury? At some level, a risk behavior. Now, that's not always an individual risk behavior, though. If you're living in a crowded housing situation, you're at much higher risk for getting COVID, for example, and, and it goes on. Those risk behaviors are the, the living conditions that people have are generally what influence risk behaviors much more than individual level uh, decision making. Yes, we want people to exercise and go to the gym and eat healthy, but most of that is about what are the norms and the opportunities um, sort of in, in the society and in the group that they're living in. Uh, and then underlying living conditions are institutional inequities. And then underlying institutional inequities are social inequities, all the isms, especially racism. And so if you want to talk working on mortality, even before COVID, it was about how do we work at each of these levels in each of these things driving the gap, and how do we get serious about long-term investments? Because you don't get that kind of graph for improved life expectancy um, you know, with an, with an investment that lasts for six months. Mayor Lightfoot, Invest Southwest, that's an example of focusing a lot of additional investment on structural causes that in turn will affect health. You just won't see that in the first six months or a year. And so when we look at root causes, I know you all are used to looking at maps of Chicago. It almost would not matter what I chose to put up here. If we look at obesity, for example, the darker are parts of the city um, where uh, adults are reporting a heightened weight um, that has a high body mass index. And you can see largely concentrated south and west sides uh, perceived unsafe neighborhood. And then on the right, there is food access barriers, people who both have a lower income and are more than a half a mile. Um, from a place to be able to, to, to buy food. And when we think about the factors that influence health, health care essential, but probably makes up about 20%. Socioeconomic factors are probably the biggest, 40%. Health behaviors, again, influenced by many things, about 30%, and then physical environment, about 10%. And outbreaks expose vulnerabilities in our societies. So when we see an outbreak, I, I, I've had my whole career working on outbreaks, doesn't matter if it's a small one or it's a pandemic, 
there's something that isn't going well with our relationship with the built environment. Like we haven't set things up well for infection control. We haven't thought about ventilation. There's something that's a problem with our interactions with other species. I think we're increasingly with a warming planet, et cetera, going to see more of this, um, you know, passing of diseases back and forth in a way that concerns me. And then finally, interactions with each other. Outbreaks really highlight what do we value as a society. And I always tell my students, it's like holding a mirror up and seeing where the cracks are. And we all saw really clearly a lot of the cracks here in Chicago. So I want to just run through some of the lessons and how we're trying to apply them. First of all, the mayor said right from the get-go, we're going to start something called the Racial Equity Rapid Response Team. How often do you hear racial equity and rapid response in the same line? Uh, pretty much never, and I think we didn't really entirely know what it was going to be. But this was this decision to say, we're not going to talk, we're going to listen. We're going to bring folks in who are in a lot of these communities that are getting hardest hit, that have very little reason to trust the government, where there's been a long history of disinvestment, and instead say, what do we need? And I, you know, I, it was a very interesting set of conversations. Um, a lot of tension, I think, in a good way. Um, you know, at the beginning, we were saying we want to set up testing sites, and many folks were saying, forget the testing sites. We need food, right? Like, work on food, and then we can layer that in. Um, but it was this idea of every single, for a while, it was meeting every day, uh, and then every week around what do we need to do today? to move the needle on the fact that, that COVID was and continues to land so heavily on black Chicagoans and then Latinx Chicagoans. And so we've tried to really use this real-time data. My epidemiologist historically would publish an annual report of what happened with tuberculosis. That's like not a thing anymore. Um, I really tell them I'm only interested in data for decision-making. I'm only interested in data that is shared with community partners. I'm only interested in having transparency transparency and building trust. Um, and so we really have tried to address these underlying inequities and center um, community decision making. And I cannot tell you how all of the community-based organizations, the healthcare organizations, um, and just regular Chicagoans stepped up. And so when we think about addressing root causes and resource coordination, when the health department in our regular health surveys, we, of course, were asking additional COVID questions, and you start seeing some of these cracks. Have you or someone in your household lost a job or had a reduction in pay because of COVID? This is as of 2020. 47% of adult Chicago residents reported a loss of a job or a loss of pay. That's a problem right there. But then the next question, was this job loss or reduction in pay because you or someone in your household had to take on increased child care? Overall, 32%. This is pointing out where you don't have structures in place for thinking about child care, where there's often inequities between expectations on men and women. Um, and, and then again, the, these are by, by race ethnicity. You see that in white Chicagoans, it was about 15% that felt like they lost job um, because of child care responsibilities, whereas it was about 42% in Latino Chicagoans. And so 
right from the get-go, whether you're thinking about sick pay, whether you're thinking about family leave, or you're, whether you're thinking about flexibility and what does that look like, it lands differently in different parts of Chicago. And I would just encourage all of you as employers, you know, to be thinking about that um, as you're all trying to figure out kind of what comes next in this ongoing COVID world. Um, I also, you know, do want to highlight, I know we all know how our city um, is so segregated still. Um, but this map shows on the left, the orange are areas that are low vaccination still, despite an unbelievable amount of effort and high deaths still. And up on the north side, we have very high vaccination and much, much lower deaths. That is not all about vaccination. It's about these root causes. And again, what we've been so pleased to see um, the amazing progress, especially in Latino Chicagoans with getting vaccinated, but we're still working uh, on, on building and rebuilding that trust for black Chicagoans. So here's what happened when COVID hit. We saw the largest single year drop in life expectancy since 1918, two years in Chicago, and that was just 2020. Luckily, 2021 is when the vaccine comes in. We start to see, you know, some improvements here. Um, but uh, there's often a story that people tell that COVID is only a problem for people who are older. But in Chicago in 2020, death rates among younger adults, 18 to 44, actually went up by almost 50% compared to among uh, older adults, went up by about 30%. And that's because it wasn't all direct COVID. Lots and lots of indirect effects. And so, you know, where you again... For time, I won't go into the details here, but life expectancy dropped and that racial life expectancy gap widened up to 10 years. But in the indirect effects, just between 2019 and 2020 in Chicago, drug overdoses up 44%, consistent with what we're seeing around the country. Gun-related homicides up 60%, consistent with what we're seeing around the country. Motor vehicle accidents up 54%. Not a lot of cars on the road, a lot of speeding going on. Uh, Diabetes deaths up 36%. Do you think of diabetes as being linked to COVID? But if people aren't getting care, if they're not doing their regular exercise, et cetera, huge increase in diabetes deaths, 25% uh, increase in alcohol use related deaths and a 10% increase in heart disease deaths. And so in this year, heart disease remained the number one killer of Chicagoans. Um, but we had Number two, coming in as COVID, followed by cancer, accident, stroke, diabetes, et cetera. And we, made, we saw major drops in life expectancy. Every single community area in Chicago lost ground on life expectancy. Um, and the communities in red, on the left, this is from 2019, and on the right is 2020. Those are community areas where the life expectancy is back down under 70 years, um, where it had not been in a, in a generation. Um, and so you know, what was already acute has gotten worse. When you look at the data here, we don't have a society that links access to health care to basic human rights. We very often have it linked to whether folks are insured. And so as people were losing their care, 35% of black residents also lost their health care 
uh, coverage. And about 27% of Latino residents were unable to access health care. Um, and we saw folks putting off paying for food, not having internet access, etc. Now, we worked on all of this, just to be very clear. Um, and we made some good progress on things like really getting much more uh, broadband internet into communities that had not had it, um, really making sure that working with our federally qualified health centers and others, um, doing a lot to connect people to care. Obviously, the COVID vaccine and treatments were available free of charge, which is not at all normal um, for medical things in this country, um, but a, a long way to go. And then when we look at mental health, we asked, have you or someone in your household experienced grief from losing someone who died from COVID? 16% in that first year alone. A lot of folks in this room, I'm sure. And then when we're looking at serious levels of psychological distress, we already didn't have enough mental health care access before COVID. We're seeing about 10% of adult Chicagoans reporting really serious disabling uh, psychological distress in that first year. And all of our, what we call surveillance, our data monitoring just went out the window. We test children for lead um, in Chicago and across the country. Every child living in Chicago is supposed to get, you know, a little finger stick blood lead level um, at their one-year checkup, their two-year checkup, their three-year checkup. And whenever a child has lead poisoning, the nurses from Chicago Department of Public Health are following up, making sure they're in care, and our inspectors are figuring out how that kid got lead poisoned, and we are then working to fix it uh, so that that child doesn't have worse poisoning, but also also, you've taken care of the lead paint, and so the next child who moves in there won't be poisoned. But we saw in year one of COVID a 33% drop in kids going into their well child checks. So we don't know if they have lead poisoning. And it's come back, but not all the way. And this same pattern is in everything. It's in our routine childhood immunizations. It's in our cancer screenings for adults. We have lost a lot of ground on preventive care that it's going to take a long time, um, I think, still to come back from. So we learned to hire from hardest hit communities. My HIV team had long wanted to do this. And so when funding became available, um, we didn't hire a contact tracing um like call center, like many people did. I, my email was getting flooded with, you know, I'm an existing call center. I can do contact tracing for Chicago or some of our academic partners around the country were doing some of this. We were like, if this is an opportunity to have jobs for hardest hit communities and knowing that building trust was going to definitely be an issue, we worked with a lot of different partners, but the, but the Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership, which many of you probably know, works to help connect uh, Chicagoans to jobs who may have barriers to employment. They were the lead in the largest grant that the city of um, that CDPH had ever given, fifty-six million dollars, and in turn, they funded thirty-one community-based organizations across the West and South Sides, most of whom would not have thought of themselves as public health. Some of them were health-related, but many were working working in housing or development um, or food. And we placed cohorts of these contact tracers in each of these community-based organizations. They're all using the same system so that we create a network of folks who start as contact tracers, then become vaccine ambassadors, then are doing the door knocking, then are answering the call line, having this flexible workforce um, that really looked like the communities where we most needed to build trust. These folks have been hands down amazing.
And I can't encourage you enough, again, in the roles when you're employing, we didn't even require a high school diploma. We just required that people were good at talking to folks and willing to do an earn as you learn with city colleges and other partners. And we paid, it's not minimum wage. We were like, this is hard work. And folks have done, we've hired more than 800 folks in and through this core, and it's a new workforce for us that we're wanting to really sustain. We also use data um, in interesting ways. We created this uh, COVID vulnerability index, which uh, for time I won't go into details, but it wasn't just saying where did COVID hit hard in Chicago. It was saying where in Chicago do we have underlying risk factors that will make these be the epicenters of COVID infection? So where you have a lot of people who are uninsured or in this crowded housing or where don't have primary care providers, where we have a lot of essential workers who can't work from home, where we have a lot of underlying conditions. And so the mayor mentioned Protect Chicago Plus. This was really a fairly controversial thing for us to do. We use that Chicago COVID vulnerability index divided the whole city into three high vulnerability, low vulnerability, medium vulnerability. And in our highest vulnerability, the darkest blue areas here, at the time when most of the city you had to be 65 to get a vaccine, you just had to be 18 in these communities. Can I tell you how controversial that was? And I was not at all sure that it was going to make sense, and a lot of people were unhappy about it. But these were the areas driving our outbreak. And these are the areas where people are not able to take some of the other protective measures that so many would. And when we look at outcomes, and again, you can look online if you want to see some more, in those priority areas, we saw about a 300% increase in vaccine uptake. And what this little uh, graph is showing you, green are low vulnerability. So um, wealthier areas of Chicago, they're always going to be willing to drive across the state, across, the, you know, many more resources to get what's needed. But in, in red there was our highest vulnerability communities. And with this and other equity-driven approaches, what you see is when the Protect Chicago Plus started, you see that red line come above that purple line. That's actually moving outcomes in our highest risk com communities above our medium risk communities. And this again, is actually sort of equity proven and in action. And for my department that thinks a lot about this, this was huge to say, if we prioritize things in the right way, yes, it's good for those communities, but also it's good for all of Chicago. It got our outbreak under control faster, and you want to take that approach, right? It's it's not just sort of the, the right thing to do. It is the exact thing you need to do from an epidemiologic perspective. We also used a lot of... We used a lot of hyperlocal data to build outreach and trust. Um, I think we are the only... I mean, I know we're the only big city in the country. We might be the only city in the country that still... We'll bring a vaccine to your house anywhere in Chicago, free of charge, no questions asked. First dose, second dose, booster dose, second dose. Uh, in certain zip codes, we'll also give you a $50 gift card um, for your time. And uh, that universal at-home vaccination means we've gotten to a point in Chicago in our surveys where people are not vaccinated. Less than 1% say access is the reason they're not vaccinated. If we could work on things like diabetes and heart disease and opioid overdose and get access down to less than 
it'd be amazing. Um, we also learned a lot about efficiency and accessibility. Um, at the United Center, we prioritized, again, appointments, not just for our, our higher vulnerability zip codes, but gave appointments um, very specifically to organizations, religious organizations, organizations that served non-English-speaking Chicagoans. And what was amazing to me was that I frankly had sort of assumed that you, that a mass vaccination site would not be the place to vaccinate people who speak languages other than Spanish. We ended up doing on-site 82,000 on-site language translations out of about the 350,000 vaccines that were done here. And Spanish was the number two, but we had a dozen on-site and then many more online. And people, when you went through these trusted groups, came, they came together, um, and we did not let sort of a focus on accessibility, including, you know, now FEMA actually has used what we set up in Chicago around uh, uh, physical access, around sign language, around really thinking about um, other types of disabilities. They now require it in their large vaccination sites because we said, here's an opportunity not just to get it out quickly, but let's let's learn from people where we haven't done well in the past. Do we get everything right right off? all the time? No, but we did. And then finally, this focus on vulnerable populations, like Chicagoans experiencing homelessness. With COVID dollars, um, we were able to partner with amazing healthcare providers here in the city, uh, Rush University especially. Um, uh, yes, I see folks here. David Ansel, um, but uh, but also um, many of our of our federally qualified health centers, um, and the idea was, yeah, we're going to do isolation and quarantine, but also working with Lawndale Christian. Some of these empty hotels in Chicago, we used them as shielding housing. Didn't wait for people who were experiencing homelessness to get COVID. Said, let's get you somewhere safe, and while we're at it. Get the primary care thing sorted. Get you on appropriate medications if you have mental health issues or substance use disorder. We've never done anything like this. Um, and we're using these lessons to now, the, the plan is to actually work on building sort of a high utilizer center like this. Because where people have overlapping um, unstable uh, health care, um, I'm sorry, unstable housing and uh as well as mental health and substance use, it's, it's really a problem. So, you know, also putting primary and behavioral health care in shelters, prevented, it works. Ambulances and police cars, about a 90% drop. And so, as I wrap up here, and we think about the lessons learned, it's really about creating these sort of central resource coordination. Um, our call center took about a half a million calls. Our uh, data site had a, almost 10 million hits in a city of 2.7 million, which is like astonishing to me. Um, but we're using those lessons to build coordination and communication centers, like community safety coordination, taking the lessons of vaccine coordination and using it to pull the work from all the different city departments and all of the partners together to say, let's have that same laser focus on the parts of Chicago that are most driving the violence while we work on violence all around. And planning's underway to get 2-1-1 going, which if you don't know, we're really the only large city that doesn't have a centralized social and health services number. You call 3-1-1 for city services, but 2-1-1 if you need health care, housing, etc. And then if you don't know 988, that's going to be a national um, mental health suicide uh, prevention hotline that you'll be able to call. So so we're trying to take all the lessons that we've learned sort of throughout COVID, definitely have not gotten everything right here, but it's been about 
focusing on what public health does well, which is a lot of work outside of traditional clinic walls, focusing on prevention, partnering with healthcare, and keeping the focus on inequities. So thank you very much for your attention. She absolutely deserves the standing O that she's getting. Um, thank you so much. Um, there are a couple of other public health. Oh, did Dr. Um, Omar Latif just walk out? Man, did I miss him? Omar. I'm trying to see. Why can't I see? There, okay, there he is. He and Dr. Suzette McKinney are sitting together. I also wanted to recognize both of them because they've played a major part in this as well. Um, I, I know that Dr. Arwady has said that she's had an army of people that have helped him, but, you know, um, I'm a little biased because Rush is my hospital, but I also know that, you know, they headed up so much stuff with you. And yeah. we really saw, like, all, everybody. Like, all the different hospitals, you know, everybody yeah. stepping up in different ways. Amazing. These pieces, doing things differently. Just amazing. I mean, what we've done in Chicago, this is why it's the city that works, the city of whatever you want to, we make it happen. And that's why we live here, because it's just such an awesome place to be. Um, I think you guys can give yourself a hand of, a round of applause for that. Yeah, you can give yourself a round of applause. So we've got a couple of really good questions, and um, I, I think there was a lot of information that you shared, um, a lot to absorb, but if you're like me, you can go home and kind of look at it and say, okay, now this makes sense. I have to sometimes read stuff two or three times. Um, I'll start with a question from our good friend, Ashvin Ladd. Um, Ashvin says, hindsight, anything you would have done differently regarding COVID, and... Where is Ashton? You really want me to ask this question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And is there anything we should do to worry about monkeypox? Um, I can say that. He's a friend. No, it's fine. Um, so, you know, of course, there's a million things that in retrospect, you're like, I wish I had done that sooner. I wish we had adjusted this differently. I think... Um, in retrospect, a lot of the things that we thought were most important for emergency preparedness, the city of Chicago was set up really well compared to most other cities. Um, we had lots of supplies in place. We'd worked closely with our healthcare system, um, really thinking about partnerships. But I think we hadn't thought enough about sort of the preparedness of community um, and really what does it mean to have structures in place where community-based organizations are already used to kind of working together when you need to raise up having enough staff, frankly. We didn't have enough flexibility. And so we are we are planning. Um, we've divided the whole city into the, what are called Healthy Chicago Equity Zones. There is a lead organization in each of the six regions. Um, there's a North Central, uh, Northwest, West, Southwest, Near South, and Far South. And then in turn, they're each funding community-based organizations um, from all the community areas. And the idea is they've been doing amazing vaccination work, but the transition now is to whatever underlying cause they want to work on related to health equity. If one wants to do food insecurity and one wants to connect people to primary care and one wants to do breast cancer mortality, we don't care. 
It's about creating the structure of tables that are already working together and then creating like the reason I talked about the workforce and hiring that is we want to make sure we've got this, this community health worker, very embedded workforce that knows communities that are trusted. Um, and then they can be working on diabetes or whatever it might be at baseline, but you can flip them, um, you know, make sure everybody's had the preparedness training. You have an emergency. You can much more quickly, um, transition that. So I wish, I mean, we didn't have the funding to do it before, but in retrospect, I think having that would have helped a whole lot. Um, and it's one of the big things that we're, you know, in, planning to invest in long term. Uh, on monkeypox, you know, anytime that there's a, a, a of a virus showing up a little bit differently, um, especially in the orthopox family, which is the family that has smallpox, you have to pay attention, of course. Um, at this point, you know, I've not seen anything hugely concerning. Um, and certainly, you know, this isn't look at anything like COVID. So I'm not, I'm not concerned at that level. Um, but I think, you know, we are clinicians are really on high awareness around the city. And this is where that healthcare public health partnership is important. And, you know, we've had a couple of cases, but nothing unexpected. And, um, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll let you know if there's anything, uh, to be seriously concerned about. But at this point, um, I continue to watch the COVID numbers more closely and we're doing well there too actually thank you i just want to acknowledge uh cyrus winnett from the illinois primary Healthcare association and elizabeth tomlins your questions were very much along the lines of you know what did you learn um what are some of the, the changes in the health department? So she's covered a lot of that. So just want to thank you for your questions. Um, Pam Roll says, what accomplishment are you most proud of? And you kind of ah. talked about a lot of things, but I think that certainly deserves some, some, oh, some goodness. discussion. I'm going to choose two because there's one internal and one extra, and they're both a little more personal. <laughs> but, um, you know, one is I am unbelievably proud, honestly, of my team and that they have lasted. It's not just health commissioners that have left. We have seen folks leave public health in droves. Um, and my team, and especially my leadership team, has been showing up every single day solving problems. Yeah. And I spend as much time thinking about sort of them and, you know, how, how can we be effective and support them as I sort of do the COVID piece. And the other one, it's, it's a small thing, but my background is very much in sort of international. And when we're thinking about equity, didn't have time for it today, but we have not done a particularly good job at recognizing that, you know, where an infectious disease is a problem anywhere in the world. It is almost immediately our problem as well. And so Chicago was the only city that successfully um, returned unused vaccine to have it be sent internationally. Um, and it was something I felt really strongly about having worked in countries that uh, didn't have a lot of resources and knowing how desperate we were for vaccine at the beginning um, and recognizing that we had a lot of vaccine that was just going to get thrown out. And frankly, people were not interested. They were like, oh, you know, paperwork, you probably haven't stored it right. I was like, my immunization team and my preparedness team is second to none. I said, you send me that checklist. And if we, if, if we haven't done it all, I want to make sure we can. But we were able to send it. And so it's a small thing. But it really, for me, it's about kind of setting an example, you know, in a small way as a health department for the way that I would like um, you know, like our country to, to be when we're thinking about uh, infectious diseases. 
anybody who recognizes their staff is a-okay with me. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Aberdy. So our own Dr. Mazur says that he's grateful that your, your presentation today was like a graduate seminar, and I have to agree. Um, he asks, what are we going to do about this formula shortage? That's the last question. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I think with the couple things. One is everybody's much more aware of supply chain issues than we ever were, right, uh, before a couple of years ago. And I think we've also seen, particularly under this federal administration, more willingness to invoke emergency powers where necessary. And I've, I've frankly been pleased to see a little bit of that. I think, you know, at the end of the day, there there is formula. It's just making sure that everybody can access it. And so our WIC programs, the Women, Infant, and Children's, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Program, um, uh, you know, has worked to make sure that if people are using formula, we're not hoarding it, we're making it available. People are continuing to often not use the, um, the type of formula that they would prefer, but we've been able to get it. It's just been challenged and it's been stressful on top of what is already an extraordinarily stressful time. And, you know, these are the same families who haven't been able to vaccinate their kids yet and sort of all of the rest of it. Um, but I think, you know, you've got to make sure that production is safe, right? You, I mean, I, it is the right thing to shut down production if, if your inspectors are finding that. Um, and so I think overall as a country, we've been thinking a lot about how do we improve our own ability to kind of do some of those necessary supply chains. So I don't think the story's over on that. Um, but we, my team has, and many, many providers in Chicago have been working hard to make sure um, that families are not trying to make their own formula, which is not appropriate. Um, and in Instead, uh, where necessary, getting them access. Wow, that's a big deal. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Arwady. Um, please give her another round of applause. Thank you.